You're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome everyone to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm your host, Carlos Noche, and I'm joined by my co-host, Lisa Schneer. Say hi, Lisa. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show today. I think everybody really comes for her versus me, but it's, I'm okay with it. <laughs> I don't mind just hanging out on her coattails. Hey, today we have a really interesting guest that I'm really excited to talk to. And for today's topic, we're going to talk about the evolution of B2B sales, how enablement technology has really allowed sellers to be more efficient and effective. And additionally, we also would love to discuss how buying teams have changed and how a successful culture really comes into play in the success of any organization. And to help us out with these fantastic topics today, we have an expert in this area, Mary Shea, who is, as I said, a B2B sales expert, former Forrester analyst in this area specifically, and currently the first ever global innovation evangelist at Outreach. Mary, thank you so much for your time today and welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much, Lisa and Carlos. It's absolutely fabulous to be here. And I look forward to a wonderful discussion on some of my favorite topics. All right. So before we jump deep into the topics, our audience loves to get to know you a little bit better. So here's one of our first questions that kicks this thing off. What is something that you're very passionate about that those folks that only know you through work might be surprised to know about you? Wow. Well, let me see. I think I'm pretty much of an open book at work and I don't have anything that's too crazy to share with you, but I'm a very big outdoors person. So when I'm not working, I spend as much of my time as I possibly can hiking, kayaking, pickleballing, running, tennis, every once in a while, golf. And so, yeah, I definitely enjoy life in nature. And I live in the Portland, Maine area, just outside of Portland. And that provides tremendous opportunity to do many of the things I just mentioned. Awesome. I want to get into pickleballing. I haven't tried it yet. A bunch of my old tennis players. It's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. It's great. It's hotter than hot right now. In fact, I was talking to our CMO, Melton Littlepage, about maybe becoming a sponsor to one of those top tier uh, pickleball players. And uh, Tom Brady, I think, just invested in the team. Yes. So here in New England, we're we're keeping our eyes on that. And I think it's going to be an exciting sport to watch over time. Super cool. That's it. Maybe we need the value selling revenue executive experience pickleball team. <laughs> that might be a little yeah, too long. Exactly. Sign me up. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> so Mary, what's your story? Tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get to this point in your career? Well, yeah, I've been around for a little while. So uh, there's many twists and turns in my professional career, as you probably have surmised from looking at my background. But I was really fortunate in the early days when I kicked off my career in the 20s that I got to actually live the dream. And I was a professional classical musician. I was an oboist. I played for many, many years since I was 12 years old. And my first job was in the Mexico City Philharmonic, where I went down for a summer to play English horn with that orchestra and ended up staying in Mexico for four years, going to a couple other orchestras and touring all over the country. I did that for a while. And then I thought, well, I should come back to the States and do something more serious. So I got a PhD in musicology and ethnomusicology. That is the study of Western art music or music that's written down. And then ethno is more akin to anthropology. And that's the study of musics that are passed down in oral traditions, so not written down. 
learned how to play the Balinese gamelan, the Chinese oboe, drums from Ghana, many other things. I got my degree. I taught for a little while. And then, you know, like many people, I felt like I wanted more out of my career. And I ended up working in a car dealership for a period of time to make some money and sold a car to a couple of different people who worked at Forrester. And before I knew it, they recruited me to come in and work. And I started, I was 35 years old and I started out as a BDR at Forrester. And that is really the birth of my B2B sales career. And the rest you can see from LinkedIn is history, but I've done every role from SDR, chief revenue officer, everything in between. I've been a professor of marketing, run my own business. And now I have the most perfect job in the world. I get to go out, evangelize about tech, envision what the future of sales is going to look like, and talk about the necessity for having more diverse representation within the corporate world and more specifically B2B sales organizations. That's a fantastic story, Mary. My gosh, you really have like transcended so many different industries. And I have to ask though, that Forrester car sale, did you upsell them? Like turning that into a job offer sounds like a great No, I didn't. They actually came after me. So it was kind of funny. I sold a car to uh, three to four people one of whom is my current spouse, who was an employee at Forrester at that time. So the whole Forrester car selling experience was transformational, both personally and professionally for me. And I went from making about 30 grand a year as a working musician to the very sizable six-figure income that people in sales make uh, very quickly. And it changed my life. That's amazing. I love that. And so clearly, you're very experienced in this industry, in the whole B2B sales. Like you said, starting as that BDR, which I love near and dear to my heart, also where I got my start in, in tech sales anyway. I'm a huge advocate for BDRs. And But having seen so many different roles along the way, you've got so much experience. What successful aspects of the field do you believe haven't changed over this amount of time in B2B sales from the time you started there to today? That's such a great question because we all spend a a lot of our time on these podcasts and I do in my writing talking about how much has changed in B2B sales and it's more changed in the last five years than the last 50, right? But that's, you've reversed the question and I really like it because there is actually a lot that hasn't changed. And just for your listeners, I do put a stake on the ground on trends and things that I think and, and uh, think will, will and are important things to consider. And much of that is based on data and research that I do pretty consistently the research that I've seen shows that sales leaders value in sellers a range of different attributes, but they love relationship building. So I do think the relationship building piece will never change. I think that people buy from people they know, like, and trust, and a B2B purchase is very emotional. You think about it, if you screw up in your personal life or on the consumer side, you just usually have your spouse or family member to answer to and or you send it back to Amazon or you bring the car back before you've driven it off the lot or what have you. It's minimal. You screw up in a business setting, you could get fired. Or conversely, you could see yourself on an accelerated career path because you made a wonderful decision for the organization. So I do think that even though I see a world where B2B sellers are amplified with technology, that uh, the relationship piece will never go away. And I think that's really important. I also think things such as empathy, being able to authentically connect and empathize with the challenges and pains that your customer or prospect is going through. I think having an intellectual curiosity is also really important. It was certainly important for the types of products and services that I always sold. 
because they weren't transactional. And you have to have, I think as the best sellers I know are constantly, are constant learners. So the desire to continuously learn and better themselves, I think those are three things that have not changed and will not change. I love it. Yeah. I don't know if I should call you Mary or Dr. Mary. I answer to just about everything. And some people actually just use my name, Mary Shea, as like one word, which is also another way of looking at it. But uh, whatever you're most comfortable with, Carlos. All right. I'll go with Mary for now, unless you tell me I need to use the doc, then I'm in. But so we talked about what hasn't changed. What might be some of the innovations out there that you've seen that people have embraced that have really worked? And to kind of preface this question, I, I feel like there's more tools and things out there than ever before. So I'm curious to see what kind of innovations have you seen that people have really have embraced and have worked for them? Yeah, well, so two separate questions. I'll take the first one on first and then the second one. I, I kind of feel like I'm a politician now. <laughs> 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 but so the first question was really like, what has changed? And so what the biggest change is really the digitization of the buying and selling process. So now millennials who are digital natives are the primary decision makers primary influencers in any B2B sale. And they're also pretty significantly situated within B2B selling organizations. I'm very comfortable with digital interactions. And so when I did some research earlier this spring, I found out that the number one preferred channel that buyers had for interacting with sellers was remote or virtual. Hmm. Number two was telephone. And number three was the in-person meeting. And then it goes down the line. So when you think about it, the be all and end all when I was a sales leader and even a seller was like landing that in-person meeting. Today, I don't necessarily know that that's the milestone that we should be striving for and paying for and driving sellers to hit. It's more about meeting that buyer where they are and interacting in a mode format channel that makes sense for what they want for that particular type of discussion. And so that's one thing. The other thing we're seeing is that there's not just one or two buyers. Like when you had boomers who were making decisions, it was more of a command and control type of environment. Now we've got, everybody's got an opinion, right? And I don't mean to overgeneralize, but we're seeing now very large buying groups. And that's a reflection of that millennial cohort where you've got distributed people that have competing and different agendas. And so Gartner says you could have between 11 and 22 folks on the buy side, evaluating a product or service, depending on the complexity of the motion and what you're buying. And then match that with the sell side, because usually what you're seeing is sales is not no longer a lone wolf. You're getting a whole team of practitioners, execs, subject matter experts, and so on to kind of match top to top, middle to middle conversations. So you're seeing massively unruly pursuits that sellers need to manage, which they can't do without technology, which will lead into the second part of your question. And then I think the third thing that we're seeing is, and it's not surprising given that we're in the midst of a global economic downturn, is that procurement and finance, whether it's CFO or VP of finance, are inserting themselves pretty early into the cycle. So they're demanding to see cost justification, return on investment models, and things of that nature, which means salespeople need to be able to have those types of conversations. So those are three things that have changed. I could go on and on, but I'll just pause for a moment and give you a chance to react. Really interesting. I'm curious, like that first stat you said about how now people are craving that remote or virtual, I guess, meeting first, then phone, then in person. Has have 
that been mapped to stages of the sale? Like I'm just thinking like later on when you're ready, particularly to make like a large enterprise level buying decision, do they then want the in-person meeting or does it, do you mean, well, that was maybe just focused on that first meeting, was it? It wasn't just the first meeting. So the question is, do they? Okay. I don't think we have that answer definitively. I haven't conducted the research on that. It was more of a horizontal. So in when meeting with a seller, what's your preferred mode? And there's some nuances across global geographies, but by and large, not terribly different. Next year, when I do my research, I'm going to be looking at the different stages of the sales. So first meeting, demo, stakeholder meeting, closing meeting, or however we want to decide. And then we will look at that by channel and I'll have more, I'll be able to get back to you on it. But of course, given that I'm, I'm an analyst, whatever, I do have an opinion. And my opinion is that buyers value efficiency. They understand that we can have a very efficient buying cycle and they want that. They actually want salespeople to answer the question right in the moment, not go back and come back to them with the right answer or bring in a practitioner two weeks later because they feel more confident in the seller if they have that answer and because they want an efficient cycle. So they want this efficiency. And to me, that means three to four to five of those early meetings, depending on if you've got a big complex cycle, would probably happen remotely. And maybe as you get to those latter meetings, they will happen in person. But Lisa, maybe not. I mean, we are closing seven-figure yeah. deals left and right without people actually so-called being on site. I think the biggest thing that's going to happen that we're going to see is the on-site headquarters meeting is going to change. So remember how you'd go to HQ, you'd meet your person, you might go cube to cube to cube or office to office, or you'd bring in 12 people, you'd bring in lunch. I don't see that happening anymore for a couple of reasons. Number one, no one's there. So if you go there, you're meeting with two people and everyone else is friggin' zooming in. Am I wrong? No, you're right. I'm right. Okay. So, but people crave that interaction and I think they want to meet with the salespeople. What I'm seeing companies do is sign up for some of these big industry events and build 20 and 30 sales meetings around the Forrester B2B sales and marketing event in Boston. We're going to, I'm going to speak at Forrester in London in a week and a half. Well, our team will have a bunch of meetings around that. Our team also does regional workshops and we'll do lunch at a gorgeous restaurant for 20 people and maybe I'll do a presentation. So I think the sales meeting will happen, but it's going to go off the back of massive, medium, and smaller events. And that's how I think it's going to happen versus we're all going to fly to headquarters. And when you think about it, it's a lot more cost-effective. If I can go to an industry event, I know my friends at Sixth Sense go to the Forrester event every year, and I got to hand it to Mark Ebert and Latney Conant. They had 200 sales meetings at that event. They rented out they actually bought out a whole restaurant across the street from the event. They had three and four floors and you had speed dating the entire time with food. You had a manicure bar, a blowout bar, you had margaritas, and it was like business got done. But I don't think it's going to get done in sort of the older, more traditional ways that we all might be familiar with. And I actually think it's kind of exciting. Completely agree with you, Mary. I know that uh, Lisa and I look like professional podcasters, but our real day job <laughs> is we are 100% commissioned salespeople. Oh, I love it. When we train it. folks on sales and people ask us questions, I go, hey, I do all my selling remotely. And I tell you right off the bat, when I travel it to go see you, it all comes out of my pocket. So I'm a little bit more hesitant 
versus when you work for a company that I, in my old days, we just go there. And I'm with you. I think our customers, they're busy. They don't have a lot of time. So I want to make it easy for them. So doing virtual is my number one way to talk to folks. I'd rather do a virtual call and I use Zoom. So here's a plug for Zoom over anything <laughs> else that I do because it works and I get to see them. It does. It's worth it. I completely agree. I mean, when I was at Forrester, I wrote you know, for our predictions every year in 2020, I said the sales meeting was going to become a skew. And it was a bit tongue in cheek because you know how they are over there at Forrester. You're always trying to be provocative. <laughs> but it was basically to say, you're going to go to that meeting if the buying group is willing to pay for that meeting. And by paying for it, that means they want it. It really matters to them. You're not going to be going because it's in your comp plan. Your manager's going to grade you on it. You've got to be out in the road every week or the month or whatever it is. And and so I'm not sure it's actually going to become a skew, but I think it's a good way to kind of think about it. If the buyer wants you to go, you go. If the buyer wants you to meet in a town in between, you all you go there. If the buyer wants to meet at an event, you go there. If the buyer wants to do this virtually, you do that. I think that's where we're at right now. So I know I gave you a little second part of my little question on innovation the tools that we use today seem to be, there's more of them than ever. Some of them are great, helping me manage a cadence and help me stay connected, helping me kind of do the things I should be doing behavior-wise that produce the best results. But I also see organizations that instead of changing rep behavior, they throw a tool at it. And it ends up looking like a NASCAR slide, all the stuff that we throw at them. Just wondering if you got an opinion on that side of it. Oh, yeah, I've been waiting for that one. And I didn't forget it either, Carlos, but thank you for rephrasing it. <laughs> so look, I mean, I work at a technology provider. Outreach is one of the most exciting sales tech unicorns that's out there. And I'm so fortunate to be at a company where we have the most amazing product market fit. And even in a down market, there's so much need for the functionality that our platform provides. At the end of the day, pressing a button is not going to fix a problem or get revenue. It's about having the right talent, upskilling and reskilling that talent. It's about having optimized processes in terms of your workflows and how you go to market and how you collaborate. And it's about having the right sales tech stack. And by sales tech stack, I'm not talking about CRM and I'm not dinging CRM. We all have a need for it. Salesforce, Microsoft, and SAP are all early investors in outreach. So we love CRM. But the reality is it was never designed to be used for frontline sellers or go-to-market organization. It was designed to accelerate, quote, cash to allow companies to get closer to their customers. And what it became really was an activity management tool, a very rudimentary pipeline management forecasting tool, something for back office managers. And now there's other alternatives, which is great. The sales tech landscape was born around 2015, Carlos, when companies like Highspot, Yesware, Allego, Toutapp, Salvo, others built off all of the great work that had been done with the digitization of the marketing process with marketing automation uh, 10 years earlier and said, well, let's kind of drive the same efficiencies and effectiveness through for the seller, but let's do it in a one-to-one -one versus a one-to-many capacity. And so I marked 2015 as the beginning of the non-CRM sales tech landscape because that's when you started to see the money flow. You started to see the VCs and you see the capital investment, which at that time was a lot, today not so much. And companies would buy an amalgamation of all these tools to get an edge. I've been a CRO. You all sell. 
you say, if there's anything that's going to give you an edge, that's going to help you bring in more revenue, get more commissions and differentiate from the, the competition, you're going to find a way, especially a CRO. And so you saw companies getting gone, getting clarity, then they get outreach, or then maybe they try sales off, and then they go to this, and they go to that, and they're trying everything. Well, what happened in 2020 is that the natural evolution of these sales technology providers was to move from becoming just a single product tool to a multi-product platform. And then simultaneously, you saw sales technology buyers and sales leaders being like, I really don't want to be my own system integrator. I don't want disparate data silos. I don't have to negotiate contracts with all these different vendors. I have different end dates. I'm not getting the user adoption that I want. And so you started to see this real burgeoning of the platform. And now outreach, a lot of people associate us with our core feature, which is engagement, sales engagement, helps historically front of the cycle personnel manage their omni-channel interactions. But we have four, five, six features, massive features across the entire revenue cycle that can support your CRO with forecasting, deal management, course correction, your managers and helping them coach better, and then your reps and helping them drive more efficiencies through automation. But also, because you've got this really rich data capture we now can apply these machine learning algorithms against the data to provide insights for every user across the go-to-market. And so it's becoming less and less exciting for companies to have data silos and more exciting for them to have a single source of truth that they know is complete, accurate, and robust because they're not relying on sellers to do the data entry. There's no more Salesforce Friday, as much as we all love that back in the day. <laughs> Oh, did we ever? Um, really? Yeah, I just have to send like the ice cream truck in, the beer truck, whatever it was, because like as a CRO, pizza, not even great pizza, pizza whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's like I can't do my job if I don't have the data. But yeah, salespeople just—they're never going to do that, right? So, and, and we're well beyond that now. So, I think you will see as we go into the next year, many companies that are going to consolidate their sales tech. Sixty percent of business leaders are now doing audits on their sales technology with an eye towards how can we consolidate? How can we have a single set of robust data? Mm -hmm. Well, and if you can have that, so going back to kind of like that user <laughs> entered data, if you can have an automated way to do that, it eliminates also that human error element, right? Or, and Carlos will, well, I know he'll ask a question about this, but people put fill in fields just for the sake of filling in fields. Like if it's right. a required field and it's like, I don't have that. Yeah, and I can't get to the next stage unless I fill it in. I'm just going to give it something, right? And then... So they give you your guesses, their guesses and assumptions, and then you're basing assumptions on assumptions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what's kind of beautiful about this conversation that we're having is that sales is an art and a science. And as we said at the beginning, I don't believe the art of it ever goes away. But we're at a place now where we can trust and lean into the science more. And I think that's going to enable us to make better business decisions, drive more profitability, and uh, deliver better experiences to buyers, to prospects and customers. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned a couple of times, Mary, automation, and as did I. And because there is so, <laughs> a beauty to some of that automation that we just did not have when I was starting out. It was like an Excel spreadsheet and Salesforce and whatever. Anyway, but... 
when you think about the automation aspect of outreach, and so I'll just preface this with, I work with a lot of SDR teams. Okay, It's like I work with value selling, but I also consult with companies that have SDR, BDR teams are looking to optimize them. And all of them are using either outreach or sales loft. And so, but the... (laughs) eat your vegetables conversation I always end up coming back to is you cannot lean on that automation too much. So I'm really curious, like your view of like, where does that automation cross over into like, okay, now that you're taking the humanity out of it. (laughs) Yeah, it's so funny. A lot of people think like, well, is sales automation taking the humanity out of selling? I would argue that it's putting more humanity back in selling. And I'll tell you why. Because the automation is allowing sellers to step away from very low value, rudimentary, repetitive tasks. And let's face it, like we and they are being paid way too much to be spending 40, 50, 60% of our time on shit that doesn't matter. So I think what happens is you step on the downstream activities and you open up a world where sellers can do more research. They can have more conversations with subject matter experts and thought leaders. They can get data and understand how to present that in a way that's meaningful to their customers and prospects. They can get visibility into dark web activities through tools like Sixth Sense and other intent providers and ABM providers and meet that buyer exactly where they are. They can understand what their last podcast was, what their last social post was, what affiliations they're in, what webinar they've joined, and they can swoop into that conversation and start to influence, but with context. So I always say when people say, is it taking the humanity out of it? I say it's bringing more humanity to the sales process. And quite frankly, humanity to the selling role. I think that historically, People were reticent to go into sales, particularly maybe MBAs or people with advanced degrees because there was so much of that repetitiveness to the task. And now we have some, we have a bot that can do that for us. So we can truly build, be consultative advisors to our customers in ways that we've never done that before, um, aided by the technology, both the automation and the insights driven from machine learning. So Mary, as you said those things, I kind of thought back to some of the specific situations and behaviors I'm seeing in accounts. I tell you, on one hand, I agree with you, right? It's like, hey, if I could save time from having the key stuff or even figuring out who am I supposed to call to next, right? I can really focus on having a better dialogue, conversation, and even being ready for that call. So I agree a thousand percent with you. I don't know. On the other hand... <laughs> I was waiting for it. (laughs) We got some young folks coming up through the ranks and, hey, let's gamify this. So I'm supposed to make calls and send out emails and I got to get so many of them out. So I'm just going to get them out. I just got to call. It's almost like I'm shocked if someone actually picked up the phone. Yeah, I've heard these stories multiple times. You know, people are, we're doing a call block, we're prospecting and someone finally picks up the phone and that rep's kind of like, oh my God, they picked up. I know. (laughs) And they literally freak out because their whole focus was gamifying it to the point of doing some activity versus the prior, which we said, hey, you're doing these things to be better prepared for that conversation, to have the confidence to ask those questions. I don't know. Interesting. I know I'm a little bit messed up. So love your advice on how do I help them really take that next step, which is doing the behaviors that those applications are supposed to be helping promote. Yeah. It's such a great point. Such a, I'm so glad you brought it up because it's maddening. I mean, I get, similar to you, cold outreach all the time. And the latest trend that's really 
gnawing away at me is people will connect with me on LinkedIn. And then one second later, they'll send me a pitch. I'm like, didn't you, haven't you ever heard from Jill Rowley? You got to put the money in the bank before you go to the ATM and take it out. Like, and I said to somebody once, I'm like, we have no relationship here. Why are you making an ask of me? And literally he kept coming back to me and I just kept educating him and educating. And then finally he said to me, why did you spend all that time with me? And I said, well, today you were my digital good deed. So every seller should be having a digital good deed every day. But look, I mean, the same thing happened with marketing automation. We got so good at marketing automation that we basically turned everyone off to the email channel. Then we had social selling and you've got people, wow, this is another channel that I can just jam my marketing content through without getting educated about how you actually use the platform. And it's 80% of the material you share should be not about you and your company. And 20% of it should be. You should put the money in the bank before you ask somebody. You should do a digital handshake. You should curate and share content that makes sense for your territory. And so if there isn't any training, people are just going to take the next new channel and ruin it just like they ruined email. (laughs) So I guess I'm on the same soapbox with you, Carlos, which is, and this brings us back to Lisa's point, which is technology isn't going to solve everything. If you don't know how to use it and companies aren't investing in training you, and you mentioned value selling, and I'm a huge fan and proponent of value selling. I brought it into almost every company I've been at as a CRO. Like if you're not investing in your talent, you're just opening up these channels, you're going to desensitize the market and the customers to your brand. And Sadly, I think there's a lot of that's happening right now because that training is, we're, certainly I'm not seeing it when I'm on the other end of a lot of cold outreach. I love your digital good deed. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, dude, I'm your digital good deed. And he was like, ah, <laughs> you're my digital good deed for today. And he was like, oh, okay, I get it. I'm like, I can't take 30 minutes to educate every individual, but every once in a while I try. And so when you think about outreach, it's designed to, create massive efficiencies for your BDRs and BDR community. And you've got your sequence and you've got your ability to do a range of different things, but you need to make sure your snippets are personalized and that it makes sense for who you're going after. Because in today's world, if there isn't a personalized type of outreach or connection, no one's going to deal with you. And you can have all the automation in the world. Agreed, agreed. So I think Carlos, we're saying the same thing. We'll get them there slowly. In fact, uh, sometimes when we get those emails, we kind of play with them a little bit and kind of turn it around. Hey, let me talk to your boss because I think we have a great way to improve your prospecting skills through our value selling prospecting program. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I shouldn't complain too much. They do turn into leads. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, actually, it's true. There's with every challenge, there's an opportunity. The, uh, you mentioned something earlier, or we mentioned something earlier, which is forecasting, which is something that's near and dear to my heart. And actually, I think these days, especially with the economy taking a little bit of a turn, it's become even harder. So we talked about being more efficient and having a more predictable forecast. What might be some of your best ideas you would share with a company to help drive better results there? Yeah, I mean, this is the gift that gives on, keeps on giving for the consultants, right? For forecasting, because no one could get it right. Even when I taught at Booth, we were dealing with students who were coming in from the largest brands in the world. And they'd ask me, how do we forecast? We've got this really complicated methodology and we triangulate and we do this and we do that. And it's just, it's not very scientific. So 
with forecasting, we are at a place in time where you absolutely must lean into the science of it. And if you do, you're going to find yourself not just with accurate forecasts, but with early readings of corrections that you as a sales leader can make in the pipeline and within unique deals in the pipeline. And the way you get to the science of the forecast is by using buyer behavioral activity data. So at Outreach on our sales engagement platform, we have features that include everything from our engage to our conversation intelligence to success plans. All of these activities, we're capturing the rich buyer and seller interactions and saving it. And we link those back to the pipeline and the forecast. And so we're starting to use and we're using behavioral data to let you know whether you've got a healthy deal pipeline or forecast. So that behavioral data could be downloading of digital content, how much time you spent on it, how many different types of interactions, what's the sentiment of your email, just a range of other things that how are you tracking to your mutual action plan? Do you have 11 stakeholders on the buy side or are you single threaded or double threaded? And so you start to bring all these signals. And I, I see a world where now we'll use video-based signals. How engaged are you two with my conversation here? If you were a deal, we would have the video bot analyzing your interactions and the sentiment of those interactions and circling that back to the pipeline and the forecast and providing those kinds of signals. So companies that are still spending hundreds of hours a week really need to look at getting a forecast system that is not reliant on just methodology and algorithms, but it's actually um, sucking up that buyer behavioral data. And you're going to find that that's what's most accurate. I see a world, you didn't ask this, but where reps will not be forecasting probably very, very soon. And first and second line managers probably won't as well as these systems become more prevalent. And that's great because then that just delivers more efficiency back to the business. The manager can spend more time coaching and the rep can spend more time doing the higher value activities that deliver better buyer experiences. I liked it. Yeah, yeah. Like, let's take that gut feeling out of this and get down to what is the data showing? Yeah, it's funny. There's a place for an art and sales. Forecasting, I would argue, is not one of those. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. And as much as Carlos loves this topic, I love another topic and really wanted to ask you about this because this is something I'm passionate about as well. But Outreach was recently featured as one of America's 100 most loved workplaces in 2022. Congratulations on that. That's great. And uh, in Newsweek, it quoted... Newsweek was quoted saying, sorry, I'm looking at my, I want to make this accurate. Quote, this sales and tech company runs numerous affinity groups such as Outreach Women's Network and Rainbow, which are designed to help make the company more diverse, plus a lot of mentoring. Unquote. How key to success as an organization has this approach been? Well, it's massively key. It's everything. It, culture is integral to everything that we do at Outreach. We have an amazing technology and we're innovation-driven, engineering-led type of company, and we have a great sales force and so on. But the tone gets set at the top. And so when I think about these things, I immediately look at the board. We have a diverse board. We have a CEO co-founder who is an immigrant. We have people that have different color skins, different ways of thinking about things, different ethnicities. People identify differently. And from day one, that's really been who we are. We all bring our authentic selves to work or we're encouraged to do so if we're comfortable doing so. 
probably have about 20 affinity groups or ERG groups. And those are organic groups that kind of bubble up from employees that either are underrepresented or have a commonality in their background. They could be moms. They could be outreach black experience. They could be the Rainbow ERG. I'm actually the executive sponsor of our Rainbow ERG and really proud to be out front on that conversation, both internally at Outreach and in the marketplace. And so we've got these groups who are impacting policy. We're providing recommendations to leadership. Leadership is listening. We do education sessions. We have newsletters. We have interviews. We do everything. And I think it's just, it's really, really nice. And then in terms of the mentorship, it's a culture where mentorship is expected. It's not unusual thing. And this morning I had a conversation with a new mentor. I spent a half an hour on my calendar and I don't have a lot of time. I'm sure you can imagine I'm got a list here. Never gets done every day. Yeah. But we just had a wonderful conversation and it was equally as rewarding for me as it was uh, hopefully for that individual and as well. So that's a part of the culture. I think one of the things that when we all run into difficult economic times, I know we've had a small riff, other companies have as well. There's more that's out there. You want to make sure that the culture piece and the commitment to diversity stays strong. And that's something we're working on. What I think is also really interesting is that my research shows that buyers now, number one, on the business side, on the B2B side, they want to know the values of the company they're doing business with, what that company stands for, what the CEO stands for. And they'll consider not doing business with that company if it doesn't match their organization's values or their personal values. Now, that was something I see you shaking your head that we just had to turn to Ben and Jerry's and Coach and Nike and all those other B2C companies. And now it's, the expectation of remaining politically agnostic is moving away in B2B. You saw what happened with Disney and gay days and what a nightmare that was there. And so companies are going to have to take a stand. Buyers are going to demand it as are employees. And so I think it is, it's important to understand what your values are around some of these broader issues around social issues and social equity issues. We are absolutely seeing that, Mary. As one of the enterprise-level sales training companies that is women-run and more diverse, like you look at the faces on our page globally, look very different than some of the others in our space. And we are absolutely seeing that requirement, sometimes even on RFPs, like the DEI. We see it too. Yeah, DEI and also environmental commitments. So we've started new programs to help to align with those kinds of initiatives and values. So we are absolutely seeing that. And if anyone's listening to this right now who is not feeling like it's coming up, you're behind. It's coming up. The research has been showing me this for a while. LinkedIn did some tremendous research with Forrester that looked at the what are the business implications of having more diverse sales team. And every single time, in addition to the right thing to do, business results are better when you have more diversity of experience and thought brought to the table. So I'm excited. It's absolutely happening. And um, yeah, you'll have to tell Julie I said, hey. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. On this culture topic, but I'm just looking at a different perspective from it. You even mentioned, hey, we're kind of an engineering-based culture. Sometimes people say they're a product-based culture. Then you get organizations say, ah, we're a revenue growth-based culture. And today, what we're hearing a ton of is, hey, we're a customer-centric culture. We want to provide value for our end customers at the end of the day. And we want to align everything else to deliver it. Curious, it's a little different cut on culture. Do you have a perspective of 
what's better than what, or is it just really, hey, it's all an evolution of a company and the right culture at the right time? Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably some of that, Carlos. I think at the end of the day, everything stems from the buyer, which is why when I do research or write reports or put a stake in the ground on trends that I think are happening on the sell side, it always stems from buyer research that I've done first, because from the buyer comes everything else. And so the increasing focus on buyer centricity is absolutely crucial. You see now the buying preferences are different. Buying demographics are different. And companies that don't shift their go-to-market strategy to match those types of buyers and preferences are going to get left behind. So absolutely believe buyer centricity is crucial. And I think when you build your, as some of the sales leaders that may be listening here, as you build your go-to-market strategy, you need to really think about how that strategy is going to relate to current and future buyers. And when I say outreach is focused on innovation, well, we're doing that to bring more and more really exciting functionality to our community of customers. It's not just because we're interesting, smart people who like to solve coding problems. No, I'm with you. And in fact, I, I started out in the ERP space. I lived the early days of CRM. And today, when you think about, I don't know what you want to call it, sales intelligence, engagement, you can see how that's all kind of coming together. And the fact that you're addressing multiple issues, for you're really creating a platform for sales engagement, which I think is awesome, Mary. And we could talk to you for the whole rest of the day, Mary, but going back to your to-do list, we want to make sure that we make the most of your time and, and close things out here. So we asked all of our guests a couple of questions at the end of every show. And as a revenue executive, and I'll even claim insider knowledge here <laughs> based on where you work, <laughs> you have people reaching out to you all the time. You just explained your digital good deed. <laughs> what actually does stand out to you? Like when you think about people who do not have that warm introduction, no referral, no relationship, totally cold, and they reach out to you, what is something that would earn your interest and maybe even earn a response from you? Well, I mean, it's just so elegantly simple, Lisa. And I'm sure you know this because value selling talks about it all the time. I mean, it's just doing a little bit of research and making it personal. I remember when I was a general manager of a business and I was talking with my CEO and I said, what is it that makes a good experience for you as a, with a salesperson? And it was a little tongue in cheek, but he said, I just want someone to brighten up my day. All I do is get bad news all day long. Well, executives are like any other person. So if someone takes the time to say, hey, Mary, I just listened to this podcast. I found it so interesting. And I wanted to connect the dots in a couple of other ways. and wanted to know if you'd talk with me about XYZ. Usually I do. Because at the end of the day, executives are and, and analysts like myself, we learn from keeping our ears to the ground. We want to have those conversations because it makes us smarter and better executives. And if I think there's anything out there that could help me do my job better or the company succeed better, I'm going to have that conversation. So if you can tailor the outreach and not just tailoring it to my ego or someone's ego, but really tailoring the conversation in a way that makes sense, like I have something of value that I think it's really important for you to know, I will listen. And I don't think I'm that different from many other busy executives who are out there. Excellent. Great insights. All right. Here's our last question of the day. We call it the Acceleration Insights. And basically it's this, hey, what's that one piece of advice you'd love to share with our audience that could help them in achieving their own goals and targets? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's so many different things, but I think the biggest thing is embrace some of the changes that are out there that are happening in the world. The old ways of doing business and selling are not completely gone. Some of the things are important, like relationship building and collaboration and other things of that nature, but it's a fundamentally different world. And if you don't learn how to succeed in this world of digital interactions, you will be left behind. And I want to see all kinds of sellers be successful. I think the world of the sales profession and the B2B world, I would say embrace change and always be learning. Find a way to learn something new every day and get better at something and then share it with all your colleagues. Awesome. Perfect. I love that advice. And Mary, if any one of our listeners wanted to get in touch with you to talk about the topics we covered today or to hire you as a speaker or even just get in touch for your advice, what is your preferred method of communication? Yeah, well, I'm a thoroughly modern, I call myself a a boomer reboot because I have more in common with the millennials than the boomers, but (laughs) I use every possible channel that's out there. The best ones are really DM over LinkedIn. If we've developed a relationship, I also use uh, personal message over Twitter, WhatsApp, and my LinkedIn is always great. And my email at outreach is mary.shay at outreach.io. And uh, I always respond. So I look forward to hearing from your listeners. Always respond as long as you personalize. Mention the podcast, people. Okay. <laughs> there we it's go. So yeah. easy. <laughs> you get higher up on the list, the, the better you make me feel about myself. <laughs> Unless you end up being Mary's digital good deed for that day. And then in which case you get some free coaching from an expert. <laughs> yeah. And you don't always get out of the digital good deed without a little personal pain. So... <laughs> It's better to, to personalize and customize your outreach to me. It's true. Exactly. Exactly. Amazing. Mary, I uh, cannot thank you enough for your time today. We've had a whole lot of fun and we wish we could talk for three hours like Joe Rogan does on his podcast, but we're just not there yet. <laughs> and we know you have lots to get to today, but thank you. Thank you. Thank you again for your time. We know how valuable it is and uh, hope to talk to you again. I hope so. Wonderful to speak with you, Lisa and Carlos. Have a great day. Thanks. All right, everyone, that does it for this episode. Please check us out at b2brevenueexecutive.com. Share the episode with friends, family, coworkers, your dogs, your cats, your kids. Get them off screens for a little while. And if you like what you hear, please do us a quick favor and throw us a five-star review on iTunes. I am Lisa Schneer. I am joined by my co-host, partner in crime, Carlos Noche. And until next time, we wish you nothing but the greatest success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.